from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Nick. I've got some breaking news, you guys. Yeah. Lindsay, are you excited about this? Yeah. What is it? The Journal of Environmental Psychology did a study, and they found out that people who ride bicycles are better people than people who drive cars. Really? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> of course the, they are. What's the news? <laughs> That's the news. I don't know what it says about people who do both, because I actually do both. I drive a car and ride a bike. Yeah, I have the article open here, and it says that there were four criteria to define how people who ride bikes are better. There were political participation, social participation, neighborhood solidarity, and neighborly helpfulness. And Aww. as it turns out, drivers are less interested in all four of those things. Can right. we just celebrate how wonderful bike people are? <laughs> <laughs> Take a moment. Kumbaya, my lord. I agree. I can see why it makes you a better person. It makes you happier, right? I'm yeah. so much happier biking than I am driving, right? Some Dutch person said it's our happiest form of transportation. It makes right. us happy to bike. Yeah. The article says, essentially, pedestrians and cyclists directly interact with their environment while drivers are almost entirely isolated from it. Inside a car, you don't have the smells of the city. You don't get the sounds. Totally. One of the great things about being on a bike is you're traveling at this wonderful speed of observation and you're able to communicate with people as you cross the street. If there's another bike on the road, you make eye contact and you move a little bit to your right and they move a little bit to their right. And there's no problem. You don't have to honk your horn. You don't have to yell at somebody. You're part of the neighborhood when you're riding a bike through that neighborhood. I keep wondering if one day we'll create communities where there's no cars and we'll all be like, what were we thinking? <laughs> what were we doing for the past 100 years? Yeah. I don't know if you remember, Lindsay, but when we had Bella Chu on, she talked a little bit about why drivers are like online trolls. And it's because you have this sense of power when you're driving a car. You have this sense of anonymity when you're driving a car. And you are in a world that was created solely for you. So you think you can behave however you want to, and no one will know because you're behind this steel cage and sometimes even behind these darkened windows. But you can't do that on a bike. Not to act like we don't all drive. We drive too. But I was reading the comment section of this article in Jalopnik. Did we mention it's in Jalopnik? We did not. That bicyclists are actually better drivers too. Well, they say in the Netherlands that the reason it's so safe to mix the cars and the bikes is that all the car drivers are also cyclists and their children and parents cycle and their friends cycle. And so they're looking out for bikes. But of course, it would make you more thoughtful if you're a vulnerable road user. Right. And then you turn around in a car. Of course, you're going to be more thoughtful. So it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, I think that's the key. If you are also a vulnerable road user, part of the time that you're on the road, you're going to be more empathetic to other people on the road, whether they be pedestrians or other people biking or other people in cars. And that article that's about cyclists being better drivers is from Forbes by Carlton Reed, who's also been on the show. Oh, yeah. Carlton Reeds. And it's interesting that Forbes keeps doing great stuff on urbanism and bikes. Somebody there must just get it. So what'd you do this weekend? Let's say Sunday, Taylor. <laughs> Is that a leading question or what? 
Speaking of driving and biking, I biked on the 110 freeway. That's amazing. You biked on the freeway. Yeah. The 110 freeway was developed as a parkway, and it goes from Pasadena to the north part of Los Angeles. And it was built in the 40s, and it's kind of a beautiful old parkway. It winds. It's not a straight, narrow shot like so many other freeways are around the country, whether it be the 405 or the Cross Bronx Expressway in New York. It's this kind of beautiful winding little parkway, and it gets as many as 100,000 cars a day, oftentimes. And on Sunday, they closed it down only for the second time in 20 years. And it was open to people who wanted to walk it and people who wanted to bike it or skate it or scoot it. And it was a blast. First of all, it was packed, just packed with people. Yeah, I saw pictures. Oh, wow. How fun. And you got some sound, right? Yeah, I got some sound from that from some people that were out exploring the area. I entered it at the very southern part of the parkway and rode my bike north up to Pasadena and then turned around and came back south. And it was just a pleasure to see so many people out biking in a space that is normally reserved only for cars. And what's amazing is the area right next to the freeway, there's a park right next to the freeway. There's the Arroyo Seco River right next to the freeway and also houses literally 30, 40 yards from the edge of the road. And so taking the cars off the road on Sunday for only four hours really opened up all of that area to street life also. Wow, that's amazing. We really need car-free weekends. I'm reading a book called Happy Cities. And it starts with how Bogota transformed. And I highly recommend it. And next week, I'll know more because I'm only a couple chapters in. But wow, it started with one car-free Thursday, and it transformed the city. Wow. We do that here in Los Angeles through Ciclavia. I think this last year, we did it eight times over the course of the year. And I hope that we can get to a point where it's the last Sunday of every month. It's Ciclavia. And the route grows as the year goes along, connecting neighborhoods. Ooh. So it's not just Ciclavia in one neighborhood, but it's connecting the different neighborhoods. That is brilliant. That's really brilliant. So let's hear the sound. Okay, here we go. I'm standing here with Roman. Roman and Stephanie. And tell me where we're standing right now. Oh, at the 5 freeway and the 110, I want to say. Yeah, I but we're on the middle of the freeway is what I'm getting at. The middle of the right? freeway, yes. Yeah. 110 freeway. Yeah. Because there's no cars, right? No cars. Yeah. yeah. So what does all these people say to you guys about the roads and how we're building roads in Los Angeles? Seems like more people would bike if they had a safe yeah. place to do it. Should happen every weekend here. Be really Absolutely. Fun. And we both teach close to the airport that we were talking about earlier. If we would take our bicycle to the airport from Highland Park, yeah. if we had a bike route. If you had a safe maybe, route? Maybe we would, yeah. yeah. What do you teach? I'm just curious. <laughs> we teach graphic design and illustration. All right, very good. We like to end our show with a bike joy. What's your all's bike joy? Bike joy? Uh -huh. Oh, just like feeling the air in my face and just being part of it. Great. Yeah. No exhaust fumes, yeah. right? <laughs> Perfect. That's your bike joy? No exhaust fumes. Yeah, clean air, sunshine. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you very much. Yeah.
So you guys are from San Diego? Yes, we are. We're with a group called the Knickerbikers, and uh, we came up in a group from San Diego just because this looked really cool. And tell me where we're standing right now. In the middle of the 110 freeway, right off of uh, Avenue 26. So, uh, very, very interesting spot. We've seen a lot of very cool things today. Yeah. How many miles have you gone? It'll be 12 at the end of this. 12 at the end of this, all right. Yep. And, and we're we gonna... also came up from San Diego. Yes, we, uh, we all came together. Okay, we got that music behind us now. It seems to me like there's a lot of pent-up demand for places to ride bikes. And you guys ride a lot in San Diego? Yeah, we're a weekly bike group and uh, get together pretty much once a week or twice a week every week. Great. Well, thanks a lot. I'm so glad to see you all here on the 110 freeway. <laughs> hey, I'm here with John. John, you wrote the book about biking in L.A. Where to bike Los Angeles. And is this stretch of road in your book? Sadly, no, but it ought to be. Isn't this just fantastic? It's fantastic. Oh. It's a beautiful day. And there's more bicyclists than I could have imagined in Los Angeles out riding today. And it's beautiful blue skies and an open 110 freeway from Cypress Park to Pasadena. What's wrong with that? Nothing. nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I'm really shocked at how many people are here. Oh, there's gazillions. Yeah, it's in pedestrians too. I mean, the walking side, southbound, is crowded as well. Yeah, there's everyone out doing the sustainable stuff and having a great time in Los Angeles. Absolutely. Yeah. It sure makes me think that there's pent up demand for safe places to ride our bikes. I say let's open the 405 from LAX to Skirball. Yeah. Do that, a 10 mile thing, and do a whatever, a cyclovia on the 405 or something. Wouldn't that be a Carmageddon? Absolutely. Our uh, bicycle yeah. Armageddon. Yeah, yeah. Do away with the cars. And John, really quick, tell us the name of your book and where people can find it. Sure. It's Where to Bike Los Angeles. Most independent bookstores have it. And if not, you can get it on our Amazon marketplace. Unfortunately, we have to do business with Amazon because that's the only place to do it. But check eBay, too. We have them there, too. Great. Thanks a lot. I have to say, as a street reporter, I leave much to be desired. I had a really beautiful interview with these two children that were riding on the 110, and I failed to hit the record button, so oh. that didn't make it into the report. But I must tell you, one of the young girls, when I asked her about her bike joy, she said, the wind in my face. And I just thought that was precious. Bike joy, yeah. Hey, we have a guest on. Welcome. It's Lucy Maloney from Vancouver. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Hello. The last time we talked to you, it was pretty grim in Vancouver, right? Because you had this city council supermajority that was dedicated to taking out bike lanes that were working really well. Yeah, we're not making huge headway with them. And I, as a cycling advocate, I've been trying to think of things that they might be prepared to do for us. So over summer, I wrote to one of the councillors I have a bit of contact with, and I said, what about redoing the wayfinding signage in Vancouver? Because that doesn't involve reallocating street space away from car movement and storage. So you won't get as many people arcing up about that, and it really needs to be done. And it is a big safety factor too, because having a cycling network that doesn't go everywhere means that if you 
accidentally find yourself off the cycling network, you can get yourself into some pretty dangerous situations. So it appeals to doing something for cyclists that doesn't upset drivers and it appeals to looking after tourists and newcomers to Vancouver. So I think it ticks a lot of boxes. So keep your fingers crossed for me that I can move that one ahead. Great. Well, what's going on with the bike lanes in Stanley Park? Well, we've got staff reporting back to the Park Board Commissioners in November, so we'll find out what the summer data showed them. And also they're doing a lot of public consultation on the Stanley Park Mobility Study, which is supposed to be a holistic view of all the ways that people get around in Stanley Park. And I'm really thrilled that they haven't abandoned that. And I got to talk to staff for a couple of hours pretty recently, and it was a very therapeutic experience for me. And it was good to see them really listening and seeking out different perspectives on how we move the configuration in Stanley Park from a very sort of 1960s and 70s car-centric configuration that really did not take into account the needs of disabled people or anybody outside cars. You can imagine how few curb cuts there are. And it was just solely focused on the movement of motor vehicles around Stanley Park. So it's really due for an overhaul. Whether you like bike lanes or not, it's a really important project that's going ahead. So that's a good sign. Also, we've seen some splits on the park board. There are seven commissioners. One of them is a Vancouver Greens commissioner who has generally been in favour of active transport and environmental initiatives, and six of whom are from the ABC party. But we've seen the ABC commissioners split 3-3 on some issues recently. So it looks like they are prepared to vote separately from each other and that they are disagreeing. And that's honestly a really positive sign for cycling in Stanley Park because we might get a 4-3 vote on active transport infrastructure. So I'm very hopeful. And ABC stands for a better city. Is that correct? Yeah. I always love those names. I guess that's a particular point of view. I think that a better city means some things to some people and others to other people. So we're working through that. (laughs) Yeah, it could be all about cars. You're spot on. There are some stickers that have been stuck up at intersections on poles that do say all about cars. So well picked. But really, we're all about Halloween this week in Vancouver. We've had some terrible public service announcement from the Richmond RCMP, which is a police force in Greater Vancouver, making sure to advise children to dress up in bright clothing for Halloween rather than putting any responsibility on adult drivers to keep kids safe. And that's a follow-up from their other terrible little video that the Richmond RCMP put out that you might have seen floating around the internet that had a short video of a young woman in black clothing with earbuds in compared to a driver that was looking at their phone and not looking at the road ahead. And the tagline was, safety is a two-way street. And believe me, there were a lot of people that had a lot to say about that. And it was disappointed to say that the Richmond RCMP CMP, instead of learning from the feedback that they got, simply dug in and came out with this other terrible PSA for Halloween. So I remember seeing this on social media. The, what's the RCMP? Royal, Royal Canadian Mounted. Mounted Police, I think. Yeah, but I'm a foreigner, so I don't say that with any authority. You'd know better than me. <laughs> wow. It's literally the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? 
Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Wow. There was this video and safety is a two-way street. I guess the implication is just as- Responsible for their own misfortune, I think. If you're not wearing visible colors, if you're distracted as a pedestrian, it's just as much your fault when you get hit by a car. Yeah. And this video was so bad that it even had the driver- who looked mournfully at their phone in a very dramatic way after nearly hitting this pedestrian that they weren't looking at, didn't even turn their phone off and put it in the glove box to show what drivers should be doing. But they simply put the phone back down into their drink holder with the screen facing them so that they're equally likely to be distracted by the next notification that comes in. So all in all, Mm. big thumbs down from us. Yeah, totally. You know, this is something that we do need to talk about because there is a lot of victim shaming, except you should wear bright clothes sometimes and you should wear a helmet on the bike sometimes and you should have bike lights sometimes. So there really is two sides to the story a little bit about if you're going to be out there riding your bike, you need to take some precaution. Well, okay. Yeah. But my answer to that, okay. My answer to that, I've done a lot of media on that exact issue, is that no pedestrians and cyclists need to be told. We get told every year the same organizations that are responsible for enforcing laws or installing infrastructure, instead of doing their jobs, they turn around and put the responsibility on the victims of traffic violence outside cars to be responsible for their own misfortune. And the way I see it is that it's all very well to say that you should wear a helmet in some situations or you should wear bright clothing or use lights in some situations, but we need to think about what kind of circumstances we want for children who don't have the same judgment and maturity and experience that adults have. We have to think about children that run out on the road. We need to think about people who are vision or hearing impaired. And we also need to think about people that are using mobility devices like wheelchairs or mobility scooters who sit lower on the road and are less visible to drivers. What I said when I was interviewed about this was that I don't want to spend time talking about and focusing on what people outside cars need to do to keep themselves safe when there are so many other things that we need to be doing, we need to be installing better infrastructure that gives drivers visual cues to slow down and give way to pedestrians. We need to regulate vehicle design to manage speed and sight lines and put side guards on trucks. And we need to change our laws to do things like banning right on red that causes so much carnage on our roads. And we need to change from ad hoc in-person enforcement to automated enforcement, like absolutely, speed, we are talking about that cameras. in Los Angeles now. Yeah, you're yeah. totally right. And cameras that enforce mobile cell phone use in Australia, there are cameras installed that take photos, and if you're using your cell phone, you get a fine in the mail. So there's so much that we should be focusing on, rather than focusing on blaming the victims of traffic violence, because what that does is damages our empathy for people outside cars wearing ordinary clothes, doing ordinary things, just trying to get around the neighbourhood. I think that's a great point. 
Lucy, I know you're in Vancouver, but did you ever experience these cameras in Australia? And did you feel like it impacted the safety? I think it did. The difference between what I experienced in Australia and in Vancouver is that you actually don't get a fine until you exceed the marked speed limit by 20 kilometres an hour. And when I was living in Australia, there was a margin of error of like three to five kilometres an hour. But after that, every single person that exceeded the speed limit or ran the red light got a fine in the mail. So I think that it really has an effect. People who visit Australia very quickly realise that they are very likely to get a fine and this changes their behaviour. People slow down, they really care about the marked speed limit and they very quickly learn which red light have red light cameras because they find out in the mail. And I hate to admit it, but I am one of those people that has found out in the mail that they took it a bit too far with trying to get around the corner on a green arrow before it disappeared. Well, let's hope that all lights get cameras soon. Yeah. Nick? So we have another guest here. I wanted to talk, Lucy, did you go to Critical Mass Friday? I didn't because I was sick. But I hear that there are about 100 participants, which is slightly less than there has been, and that we had some road rage from drivers. So that's not a good sign. But people keep showing up. So I'm pleased with that. I'm not sure that it's affecting our supermajority who's making decisions on council, but people are still expressing their discontent. Lucy Maloney, Vancouver, what's your affiliation again? Well, I've got a bunch of groups. At the moment, I'm doing a lot of work with Vision Zero Vancouver. They're media spokesperson of last resort, but they're all very busy. So I end up doing their media spots quite a lot. I'm also with Love the Lane on Stanley Park, and I'm loosely affiliated with Hub Cycling, which is the main cycling advocacy group in Vancouver. All right. Well, you can stay on, Lucy, if you want. We now have Rick Rosales from Chicago. Hey, Rick. Hi, happy to join you. Hey, Rick. Nice to have you. And I see you on Twitter. I call it Twitter. You might have seen Rick as Sharos RBS on Twitter. Do you call it Twitter, Rick? I do. Absolutely. We should all call Twitter till the very end. I think so, too. <laughs> so, Rick, what's wrong with Sharos? <laughs> um, you could pick any number of infrastructure signals. And I just picked that one. The famous T-shirt, Sharos are. It's just an awful signal to try to mimic cycling safety. Yeah. You saw the founder just came out and said, I was wrong. Like they are not effective. They actually make it more dangerous. And it's just uh, just one of the many, many awful designations that cyclists are supposed to appreciate. Well, one of the worst parts is then the city officials who put in the Sheryls on the road think that they have now done something positive for cyclists. They're absolutely patting themselves on the back. Just the same they do with the painted bike lanes. They call that a bike lane and it's paint. It's in a door zone. It's awful. Yeah. You know, actually in Los Angeles, we had a 51-year-old cyclist killed just last week by riding in a painted door zone bike lane. And we're starting to use the term engineering malpractice. And I think that that's really valid. And, you know, Nick, I don't know if we should talk to somebody, but I wonder if there's a lawsuit there or something like that. Well, I think that's why people started using that term. Yeah. But I wanted to talk to Rick about this really cool Halloween (laughs) costume you had at Critical Mass. How was it? Yeah, Critical Mass was amazing. We had a great turnout. It rained for about the first hour. People didn't care. It was joyous. Yeah, it was an amazing time. 
and your costume or your float? Yeah, so I have a turn GSD e-cargo bike and my wife usually rides on the back. And so I thought, let's add a skeleton for the holidays. And so I put the skeleton on the back. It's adult size, so it's probably about four or five feet tall. And when she rides on the back, I put the skeleton on the front rack and his feet kind of hang off. I wanted to theme it with the whole Twitter name. And so he's got an eye patch of a Shero um, marking that's made from reflective uh, tape, and then he's got a little uh, headpiece that's uh, also got the Shero. And, and your name, name is... was? And the name was Captain Jack Shero, with a tie-in that the back of that seat in the back is called the Captain's Chair. And so that's Captain, and then Shero's, yeah. So Captain Jack Shero. Love it. And so Critical Mass was good in Chicago? Chicago is on fire in the bike activism scene. Absolutely. Critical Mass was amazing. The vibes were great. We've got a lot of different bicycle advocacy groups that are that doing really well. And so, yeah, no, I'd say that the bicycle community is thriving. We're facing challenges similar to the rest of the country with the lack of infrastructure and just the danger of uh, that comes with riding in a city. And what's your favorite infrastructure? The Jersey barriers. We need concrete protection. We need grade separation would be my second favorite. I I was overseas recently. And and so I got to see some not only Jersey barriers, but some grade separation. If you physically separate the bike lane from the street, and you place it adjacent to the sidewalk, drivers, you know, they're they're human beings of, of behavior, they'll much less likely to park in it to obstruct it to interfere. But Jersey barriers is what's going to save lives. And so once we find the leaders that have the courage to build this infrastructure, that has been proven to make everybody safer drivers, pedestrians, and cyclists, that's that's the, the only path forward. You know, that's a term I haven't heard before. What's a Jersey barrier? Those are like the concrete walls that are about four, three, four feet tall that physically prevent cars from entering a bike lane. And here in Chicago, we've got flex posts everywhere at best, and we've got paint at worst. Flex posts are, for those who don't know, they're plastic. They're they're plastic with a reflective piece of tape around it. They are designed first because they're cheap and second because they don't damage cars. So that's why Mm. they're attractive to city leaders. Yeah. And you see videos of cars running down the quarter mile of flex posts for fun. Oh, yeah. 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 The trucks don't even feel them, let alone a, a normal sedan. It sounds like the Jersey barriers are what we would call K-rail, those movable concrete slabs that create a separate space. And it would be so easy to do. You can put them down in one day. And if by chance it doesn't work, you can take them up again. But there's no huge cost in implementing them. Well, yeah, the irony we saw here in Chicago recently when we had NASCAR invade our park, uh, Grant Park downtown, is they put down a Jersey barrier track within hours. It was concrete infrastructure for these car races in a matter of hours. And it's just like we need that to protect lives in our city. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things, Nick, I like about doing the show is we talk to people all the time and my eyes are opened all the time as to solutions to the problems that are out there that are affecting people in Chicago, in Vancouver, in Massachusetts, in Detroit, and in Los Angeles. Is there a reason why people wouldn't want Jersey barriers just, you know, along all the drive lanes, the unprotected lanes that we already have? Is it is it that it would damage their cars when they crash into it? I think some people would say cost, but I think the reality of it is the drivers would fight against that type of infrastructure for cyclists. 
it could potentially take away parking, which makes them angry, and it could damage their cars, which also makes right. them angry. So yeah, I would say that would probably be the top three problems with that. Also, a reason that a lot of people use is for emergency vehicles. If there is a bike stripe lane, the emergency vehicle can use the lane and cars can take the bike stripe. And I've also heard street cleaning also is an issue that maybe the bike lane's not wide enough for a street cleaner. And if there's a K-rail or a Jersey barrier there, they couldn't clean the street either. But I think those are problems that are solvable. Yeah, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. I think what I've seen overseas is when you have the bike lane wider to accommodate emergency vehicles, you put a bollard at the front that's concrete that can be retractable, and then that allows emergency vehicles. And you also see where there's like the curb cuts where the emergency vehicle can pull in, the tire would fit in perpendicular to the bike lane. But with the grade separation, even if you don't want to do a K-rail, if you have grade separation, it's the same as a sidewalk and it'll prevent people from parking in it, but allow for emergency vehicles. Right. And, you know, Nick, yeah. just so people know, critical mass is on the last Friday of every month. And it's pretty much nationwide, as far as I know. It's certainly in Los Angeles and New York and Chicago. And people can go just online and Google critical mass in their area and find out where the critical mass ride meets in their area. And then all you do is show up at that intersection, usually around 5 or 5.30, and you take off while it's still a little bit light, but you end up riding in the dark, especially at this time of year. And so I would say bring lights, even though <laughs> Lucy may not say that, but I would say bring bring lights and try a critical mass ride. They are a lot of fun. Yeah, I really think it brings out the best in the cycling community. You get all ages, abilities. It, it's a it's a celebration and a protest. All right. Thanks, Rick. And where's yeah. this year's meet in Chicago? Daily Plaza right in the heart of downtown. If you remember it from The Fugitive, it's a pretty popular spot. What time do you meet? We meet at 6.30, roll out around 7. All right. See you there someday. I hope so. And to shout out some organizations, I think my two favorite in Chicago are Chicago Bike Grid Now, that's fighting for a grid of 10% of city streets, protected infrastructure, um, and Bike Lane Uprising, which is all over the the map. Um, we do free bike like giveaways. They have an app to report bike lane obstructions. So those are two great cycling organizations in Chicago and beyond. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Nick, I just read this book, Crossings, by Ben Goldfarb. Ben's our next guest. And it's an amazing book. He talks a lot about how roads distort our planets in many ways. And here's that interview. We talk a lot about cars and how cars affect so many things that cyclists have to deal with. But one thing we don't really talk about that much is roads. And there's a new book called Crossings by Ben Goldfarb that is out. And it's called How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. I want to welcome Ben to Bike Talk. Hey, Ben. Hey, Taylor. Thanks for having me. You know, right at the beginning of the book, you talk about road ecology. I wonder if you could explain what that means. I'd never really heard that term before. Yeah, road ecology is basically the science that looks at how roads and traffic shape nature. And the most obvious manifestation of that is roadkill, right? We've all seen the carcass line by the, the side of the highway. But that's really the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways. There's the road salt that we put on our highways as de-icers changing rivers and lakes all over the country. There's the barrier effect, this constant stream of traffic that prevents animals from even attempting to cross roads and completing right. their migrations. 
There's road noise, which is this huge form of habitat loss and also a public health crisis in its own way. So road ecology is really the science that tries to account for and ideally mitigate all of those different ways in which you know roads and traffic distort nature. Is this a new science or a new field of study? Because again, it's something that I think it affects us all, but I'm so glad to hear someone finally talking about it. In a sense, it's new. The term road ecology was coined in the 1990s by an ecologist at Harvard named Richard Foreman. So the formal naming of the discipline is only a few decades old, but in some ways it goes back to the 1920s. There were biologists driving around out there in the early 20s, kind of wringing their hands about what this fearsome new technology, the car, was doing to ground squirrels and woodpeckers and garter snakes. Really, in some ways, the interest in the connections between roads and nature emerges from this broader societal angst about how cars were shaping human communities and cities in the early 1900s. So, yeah, again, the discipline itself has only been named for a few decades, but the concept of trying to understand how roads destroy nature really is a century old. Wow. Well, we had Henry Grabar on recently. He wrote the book Paved Paradise. Yeah, I love that one. explains the world. And so now we're getting to how roads explain the world. You write that once our environment is ruined, all we'll have left are rats, cockroaches, and cliff swallows. And I really like the part of the book where you talk about how animals are changing because of the road. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, you know, that cliff swallow study that I write about is really fascinating. Basically, that research goes back to the 1980s and the scientist named Charles Brown, who studied cliff swallow populations in Nebraska. Cliff swallows, I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen them. They build these mud nests on the undersides of highway bridges and overpasses. They live in and amongst roads very happily, but they do get hit by passing 18-wheelers especially. And what Charles Brown figured out over the course of decades of research was that cliff swallows are becoming roadkill less frequently over time. And the reason for that is that they're actually evolving to have shorter wings. You can imagine that if you're a cliff swallow, if you have long wings, that's good for flying long, straight distances, whereas having shorter wings is good for maneuverability and agility, you know, making all of those tight rolls and turns that you'd use to escape a hawk or a semi barreling down the interstate. So the long-winged swallows have been weeded out of the population and the cliff swallows are increasingly becoming shorter winged. And that's just amazing to me because we think about evolution as being this process that unfolds over millennia or millions of years. And yet roads and cars and traffic are such a powerful selective force that it's causing species to evolve in a matter of decades in the geologic blink of an eye. I do want to pick up on the cliff swallows because you talk about how roadkill doesn't kill just the weak of the animals. Roadkill kills all of the animals or people in that sense. Right. It's indiscriminate, I think, is Indis- a, you know, Thank a, you so a good much. I don't know why it. I'm having trouble with a word like that, but I am. No, no problem. What I mean by that is that in nature, you could imagine that predators take out the less fit members of a population, right? The, they call the herd, right? They call the herd, right? The old, the diseased, maybe the young, the runt of the litter. The weak animals are the ones that wolves and bears and mountain lions are targeting, right? Whereas cars are this indiscriminate predator that just mow down everything in their path including the strongest and fittest members of animal populations. And those are the animals that populations need to be healthy and to survive. So cars are really these indiscriminate, undiscerning predators just flattening everything they encounter. 
Yeah, I feel like it's that way with people also. They hit all kinds of people, not just the older people or the younger people, which they do. I think cars are the number one killer of our children. At least they used to be until guns. You know, we always talk on the show about bicycle infrastructure and infrastructure that can make cycling safe on our roads. You write that there are 3,000 tons of infrastructure for every person. I can't even picture what that means. It just means we have an overwhelming amount of roads on our planet. It's just hard to escape these structures. I mean, we have 4 million miles of road here in the U.S. We have 40 million worldwide. There are another 15 million miles of road that are going to be built by the middle of this century. And I think the point that I'm trying to make in the book is, look, I mean, roads are useful, right? And in so many ways, they get us to schools and hospitals and they get our crops to market, right? And I use them all the time, both as a driver and a cyclist. They're these symbols of mobility and freedom, right? And Springsteen and Kerouac and Prince all sing and write of the romance of the open road. And yet all of that mobility and movement and connectivity that they're providing for us humans, they're denying wild animals that same mobility and freedom, right? They're preventing creatures from getting where they need to be. And I think that's one of the great paradoxes or ironies of roads is that there are these forces of human movement and mobility, and yet they truncate animal movements on truly a massive scale. Right. I think that they truncate human movement also. That was my next question. I live in Los Angeles, especially with the 101. There's been a lot of talk about the mountain lions. P-22 was killed by a car and was kind of stuck in the Griffith Park area because of highways blocking off his roaming ability. But I also think that they block us as cyclists and as people also. You can't cross that road. You have to walk a mile out of your way to cross this road to get to the target or something like that. How does that kind of road affect animal populations? And then I would say that affects people populations also. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We do have this idea of cars as this agent of freedom, right? And yet when you're stuck in bumper to bumper traffic on the 101, you don't feel very free, right? There are a million instances of urban freeways that were sort of deliberately plowed through human communities, especially communities of color, and have fragmented and fractured those communities. And yeah, that's exactly what they're doing to wild animals as well. You mentioned P-22 and those mountain lions that live near Los Angeles. That's the perfect example in a lot of ways. There's this little population of mountain lions trapped in the Santa Monica Mountains, surrounded by the 101 and the 405 and all of these other incredibly busy freeways. And as a result, they're basically on this island of habitat, right? They can't leave the population and no new animals can enter the population. They're just kind of marooned there. And as a result, those mountain lions have ended up breeding with their own daughters and granddaughters and great granddaughters because they can't find an unrelated mate. So they've become very inbred. They've begun to suffer genetic defects. They've entered what scientists have called this extinction vortex this long-term doom spiral, which is why there's a big wildlife overpass being built for them now across the 101 that will hopefully allow them to meet and mingle with other mountain lions elsewhere in California. But that same process of fragmentation, that's exactly what's happening to our ecosystems. And it's also what's happening to our human communities. We've created a world that is really hard to navigate on foot or by bicycle and, and humans and wild animals are affected in much the same ways. It's almost like we force people to drive cars. And we often talk about, are you riding to ride your bike or are you driving to ride your bike? And lots of times when you live in a city like Los Angeles or New York or Detroit or wherever, you have to drive your car to a certain place to then ride your bike where you feel like you can be safe and the roads are good. 
I want to talk about the highway crossing. Is it the 93 highway in Montana? You write about the Indian tribe that has started to change how we build roads. And I think that that's a real positive sign of maybe how we're going to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. So that's the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribe, who basically their reservation is sort of split in half by Highway 93, this highway that was built in the middle of the century without any regard for nature or wildlife and kind of became this just death machine for deer and elk and bears and other critters. And so in the early 2000s, when the state of Montana and the federal government were going to widen that highway, the tribes basically said, hey, this is not okay. Just expand this highway and make it even more dangerous and high traffic and high speed. If you're going to do that, you have to include all of these wildlife crossings, you know, these bridges, tunnels, underpasses that allow animals to safely navigate this giant highway. And those crossings have been incredibly effective. They've been used tens, if not hundreds of thousands of times at this point by every animal you can name, from grizzly bears to moose to otters to bobcats. They've been really effective. And that was really how I got interested in this topic. 10 years ago, in 2013, I had the chance to stand on top of one of these wildlife overpasses on Highway 93. And it was just incredibly beautiful and inspiring. You know, right. we do so much on this planet to make animals' lives harder and more dangerous, just as we make our own lives harder and more right. dangerous. And yet, here was this amazing piece of infrastructure that we had built to make their lives a little bit safer and easier. And I just found that incredibly moving and inspiring. So that was yeah. really where this book began. It is just like bike infrastructure in a lot of ways, right? We know that the way to keep cyclists safe is to have separated bike lanes that are divided from car traffic, right? By bollards or a median or something like that. And it's just like that with wild animals. We're just trying to keep these animals off the surface of the road where all of the traffic is going and give them an opportunity to move around without having to brave traffic creating these dedicated, separated crossings that, again, don't require moving through this stream of cars. Right. Well, you set me up perfect because you write later that the allure of the car is so strong that it has persuaded Americans to treat 40,000 human lives as expendable each year. And I think that's just such a sad place that we're in that we allow that to happen. Yeah, it is. It's tragic. And along with those 40,000 annual human lives, we kill more than a million vertebrate animals every day with our cars. And that's to say nothing of all of the insects that we hit as well. That's more than a million animals, deer, raccoons, squirrels, opossums, Florida panthers, ocelots, you name it. I think wow. that one of the really tragic things about roadkill, and again, another irony, I think, of roads is that we're really blind to the carnage that we're causing. When you're trapped in your little car bubble cruising along at 70 miles an hour, elevated on the throne of your F-150, you don't see all of those lives that were taken, right? And that was one of the really powerful experiences that I had working on this book was I did this sort of roadkill survey bike ride where we were riding along actually the same highway, Highway 93 in Montana, mm. which is rolling along the shoulder at 12 miles an hour. Cars are whizzing by at 70 miles an hour, honking at us. We've all had that experience, yes. right? And when you're on a bike moving slowly closer to the ground, you just notice all of the animals that we're killing and not just the conspicuous stuff like deer, but you see all of the songbirds and the amphibians and the rodents, all of the little critters that we run down without ever noticing that we've even hit them. So I think that's one of the ironies of the car is that it causes all of this carnage and then it blinds us to the carnage. And actually riding bicycles is one way of getting closer to all those lives that we're taking. Yeah, well, the bicycle travels at the perfect speed of observation. 
reading your book really opened my eyes to not just the roadkill, but the way the road sort of ensnares us all. And I think that's the last line of your introduction of the book, which is the road ensnares us both, meaning humans and animals. And this book is about how we escape from that. And Ben, thanks for writing the book and thanks for coming on Bike Talk. It was really a treat to get a chance to sit down and talk with you and have my eyes opened to not only the damage that the road has done, but to a path out. Well, thanks so much, Taylor. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all you guys do to create a world that's navigable by forms other than cars. I really appreciate all you guys do. I love that Ben says that the old mistakes that we've made with our roads need not be permanent, that we can improve them as we move forward in the future. Yeah. Well, here is a young man who rode a bike in a bike lane and ended up on the sidewalk because the bike lane was blocked and then had a problem on the sidewalk too. So here's that. I'm riding my bike on the sidewalk because there's a whole lot of ongoing traffic and stuff like that. So I don't want something bad to happen with all the cars blocking the bike lane. So I go on a sidewalk and some guy, he stops me like right in front of my bike, starts screaming and cursing that I can't drive my bike on the sidewalk. That's why there's a bike lane. And what'd you say? I said, I'm not trying to ride on a bike lane when it's currently being blocked by other cars. And what'd he say? He said, that's not my problem. Were you riding your bike erratically on the sidewalk? No, there was a pregnant lady with a kid. So I went around. So there's like a whole lot of space, at least like five feet of space. He could have just went around me or something like that. And he just like literally stopped in front of me to tell me that. Was he with the lady? Nah. All right. So what questions do you have? Would you like to know your rights in this situation? Like if the yeah. bike lane's blocked, can yeah. you ride on the sidewalk? Yeah. All right, thank you for telling us what happened. You're welcome. You know, one of the great things about riding a bike is that you can act like a vehicle in one instance and ride on the road. But if the road is not safe, you can also act like a pedestrian and be on the sidewalk. And the rules are different everywhere, and it's really confusing. And I hope we can get an answer to that. Where this person was, it's Northampton, Massachusetts, and... There's no riding on the sidewalk allowed where it's a commercial district, which I think it was. I talked to someone in Northampton city government. Here's Karen Foster. Oh, good. So I'm here with Karen Foster, vice president of the Northampton city council. Hi, Karen. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. So Northampton is pretty progressive on bike infrastructure, right? Yes. And I think we're getting more progressive, but yes. So you heard the situation with someone who had to ride in the sidewalk and then got in a conflict with a pedestrian about it. What did you think? It's always a little tricky without being there to see exactly what was going on or what the situation was. But I can speak, you know, sort of generally to the city's approach to that. What is it? By ordinance, bicycles cannot be ridden on sidewalks in the downtown business district and in the Florence business district. Otherwise, there's not a prohibition on bicycles being ridden on the sidewalks. And interestingly, we just had a discussion at our most recent city council meeting exactly about this question about bikes on sidewalks and enforcement. And Chief Casper talked about how that's really not something the Northampton police would be 
looking to enforce. And Councillor Marissa Elkins, who's a defense attorney, brought up the point that in some municipalities where there is active enforcement for bikes on sidewalks, that can also be a little bit of a cover or a way of targeting people who are more disenfranchised, who are a more likely to be biking to where they're going and also not necessarily to have the experience or comfort level of riding in traffic or riding on the street. So as far as a pedestrian or another person out on the sidewalk stopping someone who's biking on the sidewalk, I can't really speak to that. Although certainly I wouldn't as long as somebody was riding slowly and carefully. And it's not uncommon that I see people biking on the sidewalk. Does the city have responsibility for its bike lanes if they are being blocked? The person on the bike is on their own to deal with that? You know, I think in a long-term construction project, like what we saw over in Hadley recently, where the tunnel under Route 9 was blocked with no detour, and some of our elected officials on the state level got involved to help enforce a detour, I think in those cases, for sure, there's a responsibility to make sure the bikes have a safe means of travel. If it's a short-term situation in the bike lane and there's an easy way around it on the sidewalk or something, I can see people using their judgment. But a longer-term blocking of a bike lane, I would certainly advocate for an official detour to be set up. If there's a lane and somebody's blocking it with their car for, as we like to say, just a minute, forcing somebody into traffic or on the sidewalk, you're not going to ticket somebody for taking the sidewalk, but there's no correct way of dealing with that situation, really, I guess. Oh, oh, I misunderstood your question. I thought it was more about like construction or the city blocking the bike lane. A private vehicle can't park in a bike lane, even if it's just a minute. And that's enforceable as a parking violation. So in this case... You're not supposed to do it in a commercial area, but they're not going to ticket you for it. So I can't promise, but <laughs> Chief Casper pointed out that that wouldn't be necessarily her preferred use of police resources for a whole host of reasons. All right. Well, thank you, Karen Foster. While I have you on, what's All Out Adventures? Yeah, All Out Adventures is a nonprofit. We're based in Northampton, but we work statewide. We run outdoor recreation programs for people who have disabilities and for seniors and veterans. Very cool. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. The idea that it's against the law, but the police don't ticket is not really a very good solution because that puts the total amount of discretion up to the acting police officer. And that opens the door for not fair use of the law. It doesn't seem like a real solution. They have that Main Street redesign and they're going to have protected bike lanes and it's not going to be possible to park a vehicle in it. So there's that over in Northampton, but we will keep tabs on it. Thank you for another great show. Take us out with a quote, Taylor. I think the bicycle has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. Susan B. Anthony. And now a word from Stacy Vandecker. Hi, this is Stacy with a bike thought. We all want our cities to be safer for people on bikes, but lanes are often just pain, and even then, there isn't a connected network of them. The creation of protected lanes takes so much longer than it should, especially when agencies insist asking drivers how they feel about it, and then say they don't have enough money to build it. Here's a thought on how to get the networks we need. First, find places that everyone should be able to agree on, and create no-car streets, like the streets surrounding schools and parks, also popular merchant corridors that might have outdoor dining. Next, make sure every neighborhood has slow car streets where people can walk and bike in the street and cars are guests. Place concrete diverters or planters every few blocks to stop the cars, but bikes and pedestrians can continue through. 
motorists can access the entire street, but must turn every few blocks, and thus can't get up to speed. Then take those little islands that you've created on the cheap and connect them with concrete protected lanes, especially on busy arterial roads. After all, lane reductions make the streets safer for all road users. It took Amsterdam 50 years to become a biking paradise. Paris will do it in less than 10. We need our cities to do it in five. Let's do it. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pokras and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield, and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, catch yourself a bike.